guys. Thank you for joining our Angler's Journal book club here, where we're going to be talking about Trout Bum. And the author, John Girak, is here joining us, which is amazing. Not sure which edition this is. Um, that's, I, uh, the, I think that's the first paperback from Simon & Schuster. If you'll notice, the guy doesn't have the uh, a, a reel on his rod. Oh, wow. That makes it a little harder. Yeah. No, it's, it was an early Tenkara guy. Oh, okay. I guess. <laughs> it was fun to read again and revisit. I just love your tone. It's very just like hanging out at a bar, kind of chatting with someone. I really felt like I was right there with you. Well, you know, it's not that easy to get that. Um, Tom Wolf once told a great story about, he, he taught it, uh, I think it was Princeton for a long time. And he said his his students were they were totally playful with language and they were clever and they had all this wordplay and conversation. And when you told them to write something, they all sounded like Victorian lawyers. And he said his whole his whole first part of his class was just to get these kids to loosen up. That's just write like you speak. You know how you know you've played. You've played the instrument all your life. Don't start again. Great advice. It, it is hard. And I found your book was really refreshing, too, because some fly fishing literature can be sort of hoity-toity or elitist or a little. And, and your manner and humor and everything just make it so approachable and fun. Well, it should be fun. I mean, it is fun. And, yeah. um, you know, the people out on the out on the river, people are having fun and chucking and jiving and ragging each other. And and yeah, and then you sit down to write a book and all of a sudden you sound like a professor. <laughs> hey, what well, are you saying? I know Henry is an English professor. <laughs> Oops. No, no. no, no. I, uh, I teach that same lesson, John, and I love the Tom Wolfe anecdote. It's so true. I tell my students, sometimes they put on their poetry cape, you know, when they suddenly want to write a poem, they, they sound like Keats. And I'm like, yeah, hey, yeah. sound like yourself. You're much more interesting, uh, you know, in this day and age. Yeah, for sure. So, John, you published this book in 1985 or 86. Is that right? Uh, 86. Okay. And I was curious, did, did you come up with that term, trout bum, or was that something that people were always kind of throwing around? No, that was that was out there in the public domain. I just picked it up and used it like writers do. Yes. <laughs> who was it who said good poets borrow, but great poets steal or something like that? I don't know. Uh, Picasso said the same thing about artists. I don't know who said it first. Well, it, it is so true. And having spent a little time out west and and seeing that I'm. Do you do you have the same definition of trout bum today as you did uh, when you wrote this? Well, I never had a definition of trout bum. It, it was just, you know, it's a guy who likes to fish so much it probably injures the rest of his life a little bit. Um, Gary LaFontaine in the introduction, I think, talked about uh, what it takes to be a trout bum. I never gave it much thought. I just liked the sound of it. Yeah, it was a great introduction. I really liked what he wrote and um, the way he described you. I thought was, I was like, wow, he sounds like someone I want to go fishing with. 
<laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was fun. We went up to fish the reservation in Browning, Montana, and caught some enormous fish. Very cool. So, were you you were already published quite a bit when you wrote this book, right? Uh, well, I've been I'd written a newspaper column for a number of years. I'd written some. Um, I'd written quite a few magazine articles, and I had uh, one previous book, which was uh, uh, Fly Fishing the High Country, and that was kind of your kind of your standard how-to book that I tried to make a little more interesting in a literary way. And then um, I actually hatched the, the, the plot for Trout Bum um, with the local publisher, Jim Pruitt, uh, in side-by-side -side belly boats on McCall Lake. And I, I kind of talked him into looking at this collection of essays I had. And that's how that started. Okay. And it's, it's, it, to me, it was interesting because it's very biographical, but it doesn't ever, you know, there's not the, I grew up here and I did this and my parents were this. And, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you really get a sense of who you were at the time you wrote it anyway. Yeah. And, you know, at this late date, that's like a guy I used to know and lost track of. <laughs> but i think that's how you do it uh most of the things in your life nobody could care less about so you you reveal yourself when it's when it helps the story and try to avoid all the navel gazing that people get into so were the chapters did you write them in the order they appear in the book? Probably not, although I couldn't swear to, to that. Um, you know, that's what my book is. It's mostly essays that I've written for someone else that are collected into a book. And I just, I'll have a pile of essays. I'll sit down and read them. And then I, you know, I find a place, well, here's a good, this is a good place to start. And I'll read through them again and I'll go, well, this is probably chapter three. <laughs> and then I'll find a, I'll find one that looks like the, a good place to end. And then I shuffle them around and some of them, it makes no difference where they are in the book. And some of them, it really does. And then that's step one. And then I go back and I rewrite the whole thing as a book instead oh, wow. of just collected stories and we'll so that means just just as a basic uh, uh thing it means if i introduce somebody in chapter one i don't have to introduce them again in chapter three okay that makes sense it does have a very nice flow to it and i liked how you would drop in chapters like about the coffee and your coffee pot and the cup and all that stuff and then oh yeah um you know who john mcphee is you should read him he's a great nonfiction writer in fact he's he doesn't like not the word the, the phrase nonfiction. he likes to call it factual writing <laughs> because he, he's because he said you shouldn't 
define things in terms of what they're not, which I always like. Yeah, McPhee said um, a thousand details make a single impression. So you you pick things. I mean, the coffee pot is a big is a big part of camping to to fish, at least for me, and and probably for a lot of people. So you know you 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 pull that stuff out and look at it. Did you take a lot of notes, John, or did you write mostly from memory? I've taken a lot of notes. But what I like to do is get back from a trip and transcribe the notes. And then the act of transcribe, because simply because I, I take it in a kind of personal shorthand that if I wait two months, I'm not going to understand what I was trying to say. Also, because my handwriting is so bad, even I can't read it at times. So if I get all that down, typed so I can read it and then the act of that will remind me of other things so I'll get 20 pages of notes and that I can put away and come back to and when you have enough essays a dozen 15 you try to work them all rewrite the whole thing into a book right single narrative yeah 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 I mean it's not exactly a single narrative um, I mean, there's no plot line to speak of, except I went fishing, but, but yeah, I, I do, um, like to rewrite it as a book. I'm not sure I did that very extensively with Troutbone, but I think that's where I realized at least that that is what you should do or what I should do. <laughs> It's oh, funny, theme of uh, simplicity <laughs> throughout the book was something I really liked because you talk a lot about keeping things simple, but yet you get very technical about a lot of stuff too and talk about the intricacies and all the various tackle and um, I enjoyed Yeah, that. well, simple doesn't mean simple-minded. It just means you, you pair away the stuff that doesn't matter. So you kind of get to the heart of the thing. And not taking ourselves too serious, which is something. That helps. I need to work on that, especially when I'm casting. I get too stiff because I'm all in my head. Well, casting is a, yeah, I've known people who did it all wrong by the book, but their casting was beautiful. But if you walked up close and watched what they were doing. Their wrist was all over the place. And, um, they didn't, you know, their elbow was out here. And But the, it, as long as the cast is good, I don't care. Right. Get it where it needs to go. In fact, um, Lefty Cray, once I was watching a friend of mine at, a, at one of the shows, he was up in the casting pool casting a 10 weight. And I was standing with Lefty and Lefty said, you know, I never thought I'd never seen anyone take a bad casting style that far. <laughs> there should be a medal for that. That's quite an honor. <laughs> there should be. <laughs> well, that's good advice, though. I mean, it, it still has to be fun. And you have all these great one-liners throughout the book about that kind of subject. And, and you're very good at um, 
keeping it light. Yeah, well, it's fishing, right? I mean, yeah. how, how heavy can it get? That's true. And so one thing I had to ask, <clears throat> do you still fish with bamboo rods? It seems like you really have a, a love for, for those rods. Oh, yeah, definitely. In fact, I was just talking with a friend of mine who's a bamboo rod maker, and he's building me another rod. Because when you wrote this, it was like graphite was just coming on the scene and you had a funny line about someone saying, well, I'm not going to use that stuff that's in pencils. Yeah. But now it's like, my God, there's so many different rods and models and brands and it's a little mind boggling. Yeah, well, there's there's way more than there needs to be. But I, I probably the, the majority of my local fishing I do with bamboo. And probably half of the travel stuff I do with bamboo. And the other half I do with graphite. I have some real good ones. They're real good rods. Um, I just, I don't always want to trust my, my bamboo rods to the airlines. Mm. Or to, um, you know, boats, drift boats and stuff. But um, yeah, it just... Uh, I don't have any trouble going back and forth. Some people say they do. That's cool. And when you were talking about all that and um, the way you described worth and value was so perfect about, you know, how it's really kind of a subjective thing. I think so. Um, I had a, I had a couple of rods, bamboo rods that, um, I told my friend Ed Engel that I, I wasn't fishing much because they had gotten to be worth too much. And he said, well, if you're not going to sell them and you're not going to fish them, they're not worth a damn thing. And I thought, ah, there you go. <laughs> so I took them out and started fishing them again. He's got a point. <laughs> That's very true. What about is the story with the with Dell's rod that whole story with the possessed rod and the boot prints yeah. and I mean was all that true was that a dream what was that all about that was fiction yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great so yeah I mean it was it was based on it was based on a real rod that I got <sighs> and didn't like. It was a it was a, a Leonard, a light Leonard, and I didn't like it, and I couldn't figure out why it's supposed to be a great rod, and I didn't like it. It was my first real experience I'd had with that, and uh, and the rest of it was just kind of imagination, because um, I didn't I didn't get rid of the thing right away. I should have turned right around and sold it, but I didn't. I held on to it for a long time and was wondering, well, why the hell am I holding on to this? Because I don't even like it, and it's worth money. And that's kind of where that came up. Oh, it was great. It's like the telltale heart or something, the way it would yeah, yeah. come to you well, in your dreams and all that. There, there might have been a little of Edgar Allan Poe in there. Who knows? <laughs> you know, we don't always know where this stuff comes from. Yeah. 
Well, I feel like I'm hogging the conversation here. Does anyone want to ask some questions or yeah, talk I've about got something they like? I've got a question. I, I love that you mentioned Poe just now. You know, I was uh, reading Troutbaum again today, and I love that you alluded to Richard Brodigan. Uh -huh. America, one of my favorite, you know, crazy books. And uh, you called it like a great work of American surrealism. John, I totally agree with you. So I'm curious, because you are kind of like, um, you you push back on, on classic literature in all the right ways. I think you, again, like Charlie was saying, you make trout fishing less precious. You loosen up the voice. You're really mm -hmm. important, important uh, in that whole, in a whole genre. I think you make such a great contribution. But how do you react to like some of the classic trout fishing literature or fly fishing literature? How important was it to you in, as a reader or as a writer? Well, I, you know, I like some and some I don't. Um, I, I used most of that stuff as instructional material. You know, we didn't have, once upon a time, we didn't have internet, we didn't have home computers. You couldn't look this stuff up online, so you went to books. And um, God, there was an English writer who said it was, he said it was almost impossible to describe fly fishing adequately in print. And then he went on for like 20 pages to describe it in print, and, and it was incomprehensible. So there was that. But... Um, yeah, if I want to read about, really read about fishing, I'll read Hemingway or McGuane or uh, Russ Chatham or some of that. Yeah, those are some of my favorites as well. Those are some of the greats. But yeah, interesting. I hear what you're saying. Thanks. Or Brodigan. I mean, trout fishing in America was, I should dig that up and read it again. It's been years. I, I especially like the part where he goes out behind the, hardware store and there are lengths of trout stream leaning up against the building <laughs> an old school uh fishing book is zane gray on fishing the famous western author and yeah. that book that he 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 starts writing fishing stories from the late 19th century i think through the 1930s and i remember his his opening chapter on bass fishing on the uh, loxawaxen river uh, up in Pennsylvania, my, my grandfather's actually buried in the cemetery, the church right by the river where he was fishing. Uh -huh. So it was a very, very nice connection reading, reading his fishing stories going back uh, more than 100 years. Yeah, I've, I, you know, read a few pieces out of that. And it seems a little too self-aggrandizing for my taste, but maybe, uh, you know, sometimes you have to just read the whole book and get the flavor of it. Well, he, he wrote Western novels to subsidize his fishing addiction. Yeah. Yeah. He oh, had yeah. A whole mothership operation in like 1900. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, yeah. pretty adventurous fella for sure. Um, John, another thing. So I don't trout fish much. I live in Florida and, you know, uh -huh. maybe once or twice a year I get to do it. Um, so I don't know all these bugs and flies and patterns. And I was just curious how much time you spent learning all that stuff or was it just out in the field doing it? Oh, it was a little bit, um, a little bit of reading. 
and a little bit out on the field and a little bit, um, you know, I come from that era of when people would talk to you on the stream and help you out. That's kind of rare now. Um, but I, you know, a lot of the, a lot of my fly fishing, I learned from guys, old gray haired guys who were like my age now would come over and say, excuse me, kid, do you mind if I show you something? <laughs> Cause it's right? driving him crazy. <laughs> it's driving him crazy because you know, it's, the, it's, it's almost painful to watch. So he'll have to come over and say, here's the knot. Here's the, here's the way you do that cast. Um, you know, here's a size 16 fly. You're fishing a 10. Um, things like that. So a lot of it came from that. And, you know, a lot of that stuff, too. I went through the the usual phase, but a lot of that stuff was just inaccurate. Um, you know, people start going on about what species of bug it is. And, you know, it's a blue wing olive, which is, you know, one of dozens of small bluish mayflies and it doesn't matter which one it is and you, you certainly certainly don't need a separate fly for each one and i guess that kind of leads into the tying which you you talk a lot about in the book too and how huh. you got into it and got better at it and had a fly mm -hmm. named after you and all that um is that still a big part of your routine it is. I, um, you know, I've really tried to simplify all that, but there's, there are certain flies. Um, I don't like them unless I tie them because I'm the only one in the world who knows how to tie them right. And then there's others that um, I, I'll, I'm happy to buy because they're too hard for me or too time consuming. If a fly is too hard or too time consuming for me, I can't be reckless enough with it. You know, I can't, if I, tie, if I went to all that trouble to tie it, I'm not going to cram it under that bush because I'm afraid I'll lose it. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I need easy flies that I can tie myself quickly. And um, they're like ammunition. If you lose one, you just tie on another. Um. And I thought it was great that you talked so much about catching bass and, and crappie and panfish too, because it's a book trout bum, but yet, you know, that's sort of a love of yours. <laughs> well, it is. It's kind of what I grew up doing in the Midwest. And um, at the time, it's hard to believe now, but at the time that was, you know, I was kind of pre Dave Whitlock and uh, people fly fishermen look down their nose at, at people who fish for bass. And uh, the, in fact, they used to call me grits because I fished for bass. And uh, they didn't mean it flatteringly. <laughs> so uh, so I, I wanted to kind of throw that back in, in people's faces a little bit and say, no, look, they're fish. They eat flies. They're really cool. Mm -hmm. Challenging. They live in farm ponds. You've probably got bass closer to home than trout. Yeah, I go bass fishing all the time. I mean, if bass grew to be 50 pounds, they would probably be <laughs> the most sought after fish in the world. Well, or that or they'd rule the world. Yeah. Well, I guess striped bass kind of have that going for them. Um, 
Yeah, I just want to read some of your lines that really made me smile. The first one was the myth of the smart trout was invented by fishermen as a kind of self as a kind of implied self aggrandizement. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. So these are just smart fish. That's why we, you know, they're too smart. Too smart for me, yeah. Well, and I mean, they're better at everything about streams than we are, but they're not exactly smart. They don't, we're always talking about, well, the fish thought this, and I don't know, I think they just react. Yeah, fight or flight. Yeah, I mean, your dog thinks, but I don't think a trout does. I'm not, I have, what do some of our other trout fishermen think? Come on, Noah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't thought enough about it. If a trout thinks, I, I certainly know trout feel joy uh, because you can't you can't see a, a a fish jumping out of the water or a mayfly when they definitely could have stayed below the water for uh, <laughs> to, to regain uh, all their calories. So I definitely think they feel joy, but I'll need to think about the thought. But I 100% agree. Trout anglers love, uh, they're like the Romans. Every enemy they conquered was the most uh, <laughs> exactly. fearsome, fearsome, uh, but most brilliant battle strategist. So yeah, right. I, I definitely think the hubris of the Romans and, and fly anglers are, are pretty close together. <laughs> <laughs> well, that kind of segues perfectly into the next line I wrote down, which is uh, humans tend to be too smart for their own good trout don't cloud issues <laughs> did i say that that's pretty good <laughs> that's pretty good <laughs> and then you know blue line i guess it, it's weird for me because i'm more of a saltwater fisherman and i'm kind of getting into more freshwater stuff now but i didn't know to me blue line fishing was i thought a relatively new phenomenon and you talk about it in your book so you were doing it back in the 80s, finding these little lines and things and, and just oh yeah hiking away. I, yeah, I mean, it's I think that's a thing. Any place there are trout fishermen in small streams. My friend uh, Jim Babb, who was for years the editor of Gray's Sporting Journal, grew up in East Tennessee. And uh, that's all they do back there. There's all kinds of streams, little springs come out and you've got a trout stream. They got those Eastern uh, uh, Appalachian brook trout in there, beautiful fish. And he grew up doing that. And out here, the, the um, well, I met a lot of people who were born out here and grew up dapping in, in little creeks for brook trout and brook trout and cutthroats back then. And, um, I don't know. I, I just always thought it was a thing. That's cool. It's definitely rewarding when you work a little harder to get yeah. there. And sometimes yeah, yeah. the reward is just the view and the place and no fish. <laughs> yeah, you can't catch fish every day. It'd be too easy and you'd, you'd get bored. And you, you talk a lot about your friend AK throughout the book and sound like he's a really good fishing buddy. Um, how how important is it to have a, that fishing buddy and, and how hard is it to find that right fishing buddy? Oh, I think it's important. Um, 
I mean, friendship in general is is important as as a human being, and some somebody who can share something you really enjoy doing that's that's valuable. Um, that said, I mean, I've got a, a number of good fishing friends. Some of them I don't see very often. Don't see AK very often anymore. Um, and um, but that said, I I like to fish by myself a lot spend a fair time amount of time doing that i think the way you fish when you're by yourself is how you really fish and there's you know there's no competition there's no nobody's egging you on to do anything uh i've had i've had days where i go to some little creek catch a few fish and and just kind of walk around yeah that's cool uh gabriella Maybe. you wanted to chime in you so hey, polite yeah. raising your hand <laughs> well i didn't want to interrupt anything um hi everybody nice to meet you um i wanted to comment on the humor throughout the book so i don't trout fish at all i literally never have um but i do a little fly fishing and a lot of saltwater fishing and bass fishing so there was a lot in the book that i could still relate to um and i found a lot of the the talk about passion and drive, just all very relatable to any type of fishing. Um, but the humor throughout the book really struck me. I mean, I laughed out loud several times and I was just wondering, is that something that you've always had in your writing? Is that something you work to develop? Um, or, you know, does it just come naturally to you? Uh, the sarcasm and the humor that you're able to portray through print. Sarcasm naturally comes to me <laughs> you could have asked my parents when they were still alive i was a sarcastic kid um humor i just I, as a writer i just think if something's funny you should go ahead and let it be funny um but you shouldn't try to force it you shouldn't say well okay in this passage i'm going to be funny if it happens it works if it has to be forced it doesn't work simple as that but i i mean i think it should be there um there's there are i mean there are some things in the world that can't be lightened up but i i don't think there are many places in fishing that we can't stand to take a deep breath and laugh at ourselves i agree i i like this line uh, where you said, I think five-year-old kids in game fish view the world in much the same way. Both are capable of intense, single-minded observation, but they see the essence of a thing rather than the details. And maybe that's just because I have kids, but they they call it like they see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think dogs and cats are the same way. A lot of animals are the same way. Horses. They just, they, they, just see what's what's fundamental about things and they don't get uh, distracted by details yeah we had a party here at the house recently and some one of the, one of the kids was like the lights out in your bathroom and i said oh well, i guess the bulb went and he said well go fix it <laughs> i was like okay five-year-old kid <laughs> but that's just how they operate <laughs> yeah and and then you know you were talking about traveling and uh, how you prefer your truck 
which I can relate to, especially out West. Um, and, and how you don't so much like planes. And you said, I enjoy fishing too much to risk my life at it. Death can really cut into your fishing time. <laughs> like lines like that, just that's freaking gold. I love it. Well, I, I still am not thrilled with fl uh, flying. In fact, less so now than I was then. It's just, it's just not any fun anymore. There was a time when they treated you well. They treat you like a paying customer. And now they sort of treat you like a suspect. And I, I just don't care for that. Were you working on this book before it all came together? Longer than I usually do. Um, I, was, I was making a living freelancing magazine stories and... Um, not every story I wrote was good enough to go into a book. So that's, I don't know. I don't know. It would be a guess, probably five or six years worth of work there. Um, probably half my thirties. Okay. And something would you like, work mostly like, like in the winter when you weren't fishing or would you fish and then oh. crank some stuff out or. You know, I I try to I try to do all my work in the winter, and then so I can fish. I don't fish constantly, of course, but you know, spring, summer, and fall, I have the time to fish. But it rarely works out that way because it's the real world, and uh, editors want stories when they want them, and they they understand you need to go fishing but they don't see the connection between those two things sure. um so yeah i mean i'm trying to make it work this year i'm i'm trying to get a lot of work done this winter and uh you know i just had a book come out recently in the spring and so i've had to do some some promotion on that and it, it, I don't know. It kind of gets it gets complicated. I'm okay. I'm just now I'm just now seeing what Margaret Mitchell meant when someone asked her if she, she wrote um, uh, "Gone with the Wind," and someone asked her if she was ever going to write another book, and she said, "Just being the author of Gone with the Wind is a full time job." So I mean, there's a, that was that was a revelation. <laughs> I didn't realize that you didn't just sell the book and move on. <laughs> yeah. Especially now with all the marketing and signings and all the things that are involved. You know, they used to, the publishers used to actually send you on tour and um, it was, I don't know. It was kind of frantic and, and, and all, but it was kind of cool. You'd, you'd fly to a city and, They'd hire these, um, they call them author escorts, but the word escort is loaded. So I, I just call them drivers. But you're, you know, your driver picks you up at the airport. She takes you to a hotel. Um, you, uh, you've got a credit card from Simon & Schuster. Um, she picks you up later. She takes you to your interviews. She takes you to the book signing. Next morning, she takes you to the airport. 
and um you know it's hectic but it's kind of cool i mean you're it feels like you're playing with the big boys um especially when you check into hotels like in you know downtown portland oregon and the guys there's a guy in a uniform opening the door for you i mean that's not something that happens to me every day but then covid came along and they decided they could do it all online in things like this and so they don't do that anymore and uh, you know of course the advantage is i'm i'm in my office i didn't have to go anywhere uh i am wearing pants but i wouldn't have to well, so i mean you, you know they're yeah just out of politeness uh so uh, yeah i don't know i'm 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 split on that it's good to have a publisher i didn't always have a publisher who did much in the way of promotion so it's good to have that but then you know the downside is they go okay here's a stack of plane tickets go out and do it sure i have found that um you know i'm not exactly a born showman but I don't find a screen as compelling as having, you know, 50 real life people out in front of me because they kind of, they become this kind of force and online, it's just, we're all sitting in our houses, like talking on the phone. So it just isn't the same. It's not the same energy yeah it's weird and we live in a weird world now oh yeah it's getting weirder by the day i just before i came down here i was watching the news and i thought i can't watch this anymore i'm gonna have to go be charming <laughs> no i hear you on that and you know it, it was interesting so as a fellow writer and a bunch of us on this call are, are writers and, and editors um you know this was written in the mid 80s and to hear you talk about how you wanted to write for the fishing magazines and you know that kind of comes up a few different times and back then that really was a big deal you know to be published in some of those spots and it's kind of it's it's all changed so much and a lot of those are a lot of the magazines are gone and it's just it's a whole different situation now but I think there's still something cool about it. Oh, I, yeah, I do too. Um, and it was, you know, there was a time when it was somehow, well, you can make a living at it a lot easier a couple of decades ago than you can now. The pay was better. There were more magazines. Um, I don't know. It just... <laughs> I was 20 or 30 years younger that that helped but you know it just seemed easier if you were willing to do the work you could make a living and now I mean you know I've got some money back but boy I don't know if somebody asked me how to make a living as a writer now I wouldn't know what to tell them I don't know how you do it online yeah it's not easy but it's it's doable <laughs> you better be good that's what i would tell them the uh the advantage was that everything was in print and they understood they had to pay for for the work sure and expense budgets and you could go on trips there was a lot more travel and media junkets and all that stuff mm -hmm. but was that as a kid when you were 
you know, reading field and stream or whatever you were reading, was that something you said, I want to do this? Yeah. I mean, I didn't understand what this was. I just knew there were people who traveled around fishing and hunting and wrote about it and seemed like they seemed like they had unlimited funds somehow. Um, I just wanted to, I, I just wanted to do that part. I wanted to do the travel and the hunting and fishing. And then, you know, I had like kind of in another part of my life, I had this ambition to write literature and actually took me a surprisingly long time to put the two together hmm. and realize I could write about fishing. I actually thought maybe I can write some stories about fishing and, and uh, to help uh, subsidize my actual literary career. And it took the people you were talking about earlier, um, Jim Harrison, uh, Tom McGuane, Russ Chatham, some of those folks, um, Craig Nova, to uh, to say, yeah, actually, this writing about sport can be as good as any other kind of writing. And that's kind of when I, that was kind of right around the trout bottom, I think. Anybody else want to throw up some questions? Hi, John. Um, I really admire your writing and... Um, I'm a writer and a student of writing. And, you know, everyone knows the sentence is the fundamental building block of the story. But mm -hmm. I've been incredibly impressed with your paragraphs. I think your paragraphs are little gems. And I'm wondering if you have a philosophy of, of writing paragraphs. You know, what distinguishes yours from more mundane writing? Well, I, I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, I my philosophy is... Uh, you know, what my high school English teacher told me, a, a paragraph is a coherent thought. And when you're done with that thought, the sooner the better, move on to the next one. And that's another paragraph. So, I, I, I mean, that's it. It's just craftsmanship. Well, there's more going on in your mind than that statement. But um, OK, <laughs> thank you. Well, yeah, what's going on in my mind is what am I what am I going to say in this paragraph? It all comes down to what you say. Right. And there is a thing where you can you can connect or separate thoughts by different thoughts by either including them in one paragraph or moving them to a new paragraph. It's kind of subtle, but that that kind of it's it's the paragraph structure is a signal to the reader. Everything you do as a writer is, is for the reader. Right. So people who say they write for themselves, I had a, there was a guy who years and years ago, I was in a poetry workshop and a guy said something like, well, I, it doesn't matter to me if you get it because I'm writing for myself. And the instructor, Jack Collum, great man, said, you know, I think that's great. And when you're ready to write as communication, you should come back and see us. <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. That's funny. I have a, a favorite paragraph I'd like to read. It it really stuck out to me in the book. Um, it just started off so light and ended so heavy. 
um, and just talking about paragraphs. So it was uh, night fishing isn't something a lot of us get into seriously. It takes the kind of dedication to actually catching fish that many of us don't have, but it should be done from time to time. If for no other reason, then it's there to be done. An easy adventure. If you ignore too many things like that, you'll eventually end up with a general dissatisfaction with your life. You'll go sour and won't know why. It will be because you never fished at night. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a classic paragraph. It, it's, it is. It, 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 starts, it starts in one place. It ends up in another, all the same subject, more or less. And, uh, and it changes tone. Night fishing. I bet I know who you were thinking of, Gabriella, when he was talking about night fishing. Yeah, <laughs> several several different experiences. That one especially. Yeah. We it's... have a, a mutual friend who is known as Crazy Alberto, who fishes the non-human hours. He calls them. Yeah. Yeah. Late, late, late. Um, you know, a lot, a lot happens out on the water at night, and uh, but it's it's spooky. I mean, you can't see. And at the same time, there's like an un, like an uneasiness, but also an extreme sense of calm that is not there oh, during sure. the day. And it's like a really great combination. Yeah, but you know, it's one thing if you're if you're out on a big flat river like the the Henry's Fork and at last chance swinging wet flies, and it's another if you're in some mountain creek and and you know there's woods all around you and animals skittering around that you can't see and it's it's interesting stuff yeah that could spook you out a lot of well bill sisson i don't know if he's still on here but he fishes the beaches in new england at night for stripers a lot mm -hmm. it's knowing when to stay and when to go and, and trying to read the water at night it is challenging but it's yeah and you're usually alone, even if you're with somebody, you can't see them. So right, <laughs> you're, you're pretty much alone. Um, I enjoyed all that passage too. Um, there was another one here that I wanted to read. You were, you talk about uh, whether or not trout eat other fish or if they're only eating bugs and how you've had these conversations with scientists. And you said the fish take the fly. So it's true, or maybe it's largely false but still works, and so might as well be true, like politics or religion, it occurs to you that the great questions are probably a hell of a lot more fun than the answers. But by the time you've made your fifth cast, you've forgotten about the whole thing. <laughs> uh, I thought that was really funny. Yeah, well, I, you know, like I said, it's all you people have read this book a lot, <laughs> a lot more recently than I have. It's, it's good stuff. All right, go ahead, John. Uh, yeah, John, I'm I'm currently reading Paradise, and the chapter Winter got me thinking, since that's what we're rolling into. While I'm not a hunter, which you touch on in the chapter, uh, I am a mainer, and something we do uh, when it gets cold and the water freezes is ice fish. And I yeah. couldn't help but think while reading the chapter, do you have any experiences in ice fishing, and have you done it before? Well, yeah. Um, I ice fished as a kid. And um, I grew up in uh, in the Midwest and and uh, mostly in Minnesota. So yeah, we'd go out and ice fish in the winter and catch mostly perch, um, occasionally pike, occasionally walleye. 
And, um, you know, my, my, I guess my main impetus was I just wanted to go out with the men. I was a little kid. And anytime the men said, you know, get your, get your rod and get your fishing stuff. We're going fishing. You'd go. Um, but, you know, we didn't have a heated fish shanty. We sat on overturned buckets out on the, out on the ice and right. it was pretty miserable, but, you know, like I said, you'd go because it was it was what the men were doing. And I've, I've done it a few other times. Um, there's a, there's I got a I wrote a story somewhere about. There was a thing that was um, popular out here where people would lay down in the ice, drill a hole, they'd put a pad down, they'd lay down in the ice, cover their head with a blanket, and you could see the fish. It was really cool. And you'd just have a hand line with a jig and you'd and you'd jig Don't these fish. And uh and you could you could catch them when you were catching trout. And uh there was there was an incident where a couple of guys were out on on I think it was Veely Lake in the in the national park doing that, and somebody I think from New Jersey called the park service and said there's a couple of bodies that have been <laughs> left out on the ice <laughs> so the park rangers that sounds like us out yeah. and found that bodies were actually alive and they had stringers of fish <laughs> but yeah, short answer is no i i actually don't do very much ice fishing at all well the beer never gets warm that's one good thing <laughs> no sure freezes <laughs> Hey everyone, so that was our book club conversation with John Gierak about his famous book, Trout Bomb. If you'd like to read more of John's stories, we do have a few slated for future issues of Angler's Journal, so make sure to pick up a subscription at anglersjournal.com. We also have a personality profile about John slated for the spring 2024 issue, which is also the 10-year anniversary issue of Angler's Journal. Thanks so much for listening.